Two days ago, I saw a vehicle that had hauled that tanker. You want to get out of here? You talk to me. minute where we calmly ignore the rabbits in Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about minute 14, which begins with Dog holding the gyro captain at gunpoint, and it ends with Max looking through his binoculars. Picking up where we left off yesterday, the gyro captain has found himself the captive of the man that he was trying to capture himself. The tables have metaphorically turned. (laughs) I like to think that there's a lesson for him to learn in in setting traps for people. Like, be more careful, because you might set a trap for somebody who is smart enough to turn it around on you. (laughs) I think one of the key qualities of a successful trap is that the person that you ensnare is actually ensnared and not allowed to continue walking around and acting of their own volition. That's a good point, because when Max turned the trap around, he pinned the captain to the ground. Mm-hmm. And then put him in his car where he is bound to the seat, to the car. So he, since the trap was turned around, Captain has never been able to move of his own volition. Mm-hmm. Like seem a little bit smarter. Not that I want the gyro captain to take advantage of Max and leave him without fuel in the middle of the desert. But what he probably should have done is popped out of the ground, held Max at the end of his crossbow, and then like, I don't know, chained him up, tied him up somehow. So that way he couldn't, like, cause trouble. And obviously the gyro captain wanted the booby trap deactivated, but, you know, he didn't necessarily need Max to do that. He could have just said, hey, tell me how to deactivate the booby trap, or I'll, like, put an arrow in your gut. That type of thing. Yeah. And, I mean, what's done is done. It doesn't do a lot of good to suppose what could have happened, although it is fun. (laughs) movie quote. I will never it begrudge does not myself. do to dwell on dreams. Can't remember what movie it's from. And forget to live. It's not do to dwell on dreams. And forget to live. And forget to live. You can almost like hear the person saying. Oh my god. What's it from? It's from Harry Potter. <laughs> Which one and who says it? Hold on. Oh, Dumbledore says it. Yep. In the in the afterlife scene. Nope. Earlier, it's in Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Oh, that makes sense because it's the one I'm listening to right now. Mm-hmm. It's when Dumbledore finds Harry staring at the mirror of Erised. Oh, yeah, of course. That makes so much sense. Yeah. I can't believe it. I without even meaning to, I pull Harry Potter. <laughs> Oh, jeez. You can't be helped. I can't be helped. <laughs> and what's worse is it's the not not going to be the only Harry Potter reference in this episode. Nope. I've got another one. I would expect nothing planned. less. I would expect nothing less. I could probably reference Harry Potter in every single episode. I just don't. I'm pretty sure you could reference Harry Potter in every sentence that you speak. You are so... I love Harry Potter. Addicted is not the right word because it's not a substance. It's a piece of media. Obsessed? You're so obsessed with that. Like, you fall asleep to Harry Potter every single night. Like, that's how you get to bed. It's because I know the book so well that I don't need to listen. (laughs) That's why I use them to help me fall asleep. Uh, Because I I like being read to sleep, but... If I find it too interesting, I won't fall asleep. You're so thickly immersed in that universe. (laughs) I love you for it. 
Thank you. So getting back to the minute at hand, the gyro captain is not only held captive, but the person that's currently holding him captive (laughs) is a bit non-traditional because it turns out that the dog is holding the gyro captain at gunpoint. The gun is kind of fastened to the inside of the car and there's a string tied around the triggers. And wouldn't you know, the other end of that string is tied around like a plastic bone and that bone is in dog's mouth. So dog is holding the trigger over the gyro captain's life or death. He's essentially John Travolta in the driving scene from Pulp Fiction. (laughs) Okay, I love the setup. I I think it's very clever. But for the emotional security of the gyro captain, this is like the worst thing. Mm -hmm. This is so bad. And here comes my second Harry Potter reference. You don't make a horcrux out of something that's alive and can think and move for itself. You don't put the gun in the hands of something that can think and move for itself that you can't control what they think and move. It's just not smart. Like, what if what if a bunny runs by the car and distracts the dog? The dog wants to go chase after the bunny. And in doing so, he shoots the face off the guy who knows where the gasoline is. It's just not smart on Max's part. However, okay, we've already established that Max and the dog are really good at, like, communicating with each other. They've been together so long that yes, one have. perfectly complements the other. Like they are yes. together in this and they share that unspoken connection. And so we actually get a good example of what you just said. The dog is sitting there with this bone in his mouth and he looks out the window and a rabbit runs by into a bush and the captain flinches. He is expecting this dog to, I guess, jump out the window with the bone still in his mouth and chase after this rabbit. At least like bark at the rabbit, maybe. Mm -hmm. But dog does nothing. He just sits still. And the gyro captain, like, sighs in relief. And then we get a shot of Max, and he seems very pleased. Yes. Both of us had kind of a Mandela effect on this moment. Mm -hmm. We both thought that Max actually smiled, but he does not. He does not smile. His expression doesn't, like, his facial expression stays the same. There's just, like, a pleased aura about him. It's like in his eyes. Yes. You can tell that he's amused by the situation. Yes. The fact that the gyro captain, who has spent this whole minute so far saying, ah, good dog, nice dog... And the fact that Max knows exactly how good a dog dog actually is. Dog is not just a good dog. He is possibly best dog. Dog is dog is best dog. (laughs) (laughs) And it's funny because you you set up and everyone is kind of in that same position. The gyro captain is. They're expecting the dog to act out. But Max knows the dog better. Yes. You know, he knows the dog enough to trust him to put him in this setup. Yeah. He says, okay, dog, this is your responsibility now. You know, make sure he doesn't move and blast him if he does. And I'm kind of glad that the dog doesn't blast the gyro captain because... The movie would be over. A, the movie would be over, but B, and this is going back to the Pulp Fiction reference I made, that would be a terrible mess. And... Oh, yeah, it really would. And he doesn't have Harvey Keitel to clean up the mess for him. Like, he's going to have to scrub out that car himself. Where's he going to find a brush? Where's he going to find a spray bottle of upholstery cleaner? With what supplies? That smell is going to be in there, and it's going to be even worse than it probably already is. Right, it's going to bake in the heat? Yeah. Oh, oh, that's going to be awful. So, a lot of trust Max is putting in Dog right now, and Dog delivers. Of course he does. Another downside to 
the gyro captain getting a face full of shotgun would have been that the box of dog food sitting behind him would have been ruined because it would have been filled with shotgun shot. Mm-hmm. And the name brand on that box is Dinky Die Dog Food, which was specifically made for this movie. It doesn't actually exist as a real product. <laughs> it's kind of a prop that they dreamed up. And what's fun about Dinky Die Dog Food is that when they made the 2015 Mad Max video game, they put the Dinky Die Dog Food in there as like a health power up. When you are wandering through and you've been hurt and you're controlling Max, if you find a can of Dinky Die Dog Food, you can eat that for a big health boost. Or you can find like a corpse full of maggots and eat that as well, which is, there's an achievement for doing that because it's so gross of an idea. Oh, do you have that achievement? Of course. I guess I, any, any port in a storm. Beating up dudes can take a lot out of you. <laughs> <laughs> One interesting detail about its inclusion in the video game is that they actually pronounce it wrong. I've been calling it Dinky Die. In the video game, they call it Dinky D, and it's actually pronounced that other way. And apparently, Dinky Die is an Australian slang for genuine or authentically Australian or true. I'm not 100% certain how common that slang actually is. Yeah. But our listenership will come through for us because that's exactly what they do. Yes. That makes sense as a slang that they would choose when they're trying to make up a product. It doesn't actually have to exist, but they still have to make it up to use that slang. It's mm-hmm. kind of a catchy sounding word, but also means like authentically Australian. This movie is authentically Australian. And yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a good name. Mm-hmm. And then it's funny that they would mispronounce the slang for authentically Australian in the video game. Yeah. I think the fact that the video game was made... authentically Australian. I think the fact that the video game was made in 2015 by an American studio did not do them any credit. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot to be said about the Mad Max video game. One of the major points against it is that they were neither able to get Mel Gibson or Tom Hardy's likeness for the character or a proper sound alike for the character. Yeah, it did kind of take something away. I mean, everything else I enjoyed. I played the hell out of that game. It's so much fun. And that's there's still stuff that I haven't done in it. I don't have 100% yet. But that's another subject for another time. So I wanted to touch briefly on rabbits in Australia. Mm-hmm. Because it is, it is such a thing. For those of you that don't know, rabbits are not native to Australia. They were brought by settlers back in the 18th century and their population exploded. Like they didn't have the same natural predators on this new continent. And so they just got out of control. And the people of Australia, the white people in Australia that were responsible for introducing them, have been trying to fight back this population for a long, long time. We're talking about conventional methods such as trapping or shooting or destroying their nests. They built a rabbit-proof fence in Western Australia to try and stop the population from moving across the continent. They've introduced viruses to, like, cull the population. It's crazy. There is a picture. I'm trying to find it. The picture might only be in my imagination. Because I I looked up the rabbit-proof fence back when one of my favorite podcasts that I've mentioned plenty of times, uh, Stuff You Missed in History Class, did an episode about the rabbit-proof fence. So I seem to remember that there's a picture of both sides of the fence where one side is rather barren because all the vegetation has been eaten by the rabbits. Yeah. while the other side is a bit more lush, the side 
side where the rabbits are not. And now I'm looking for that picture and I don't see it. So it might just be in my imagination. That's right. Your imagination yeah, is... my imagination. It's actually a good place for it because we are doing a podcast. Yes. And it's... Well, we could post it. <laughs> All right. If you find it, you can post it to the listener's page. Okay. Uh, there's also a movie called Rabbit Proof Fence from 2002. And it is... Oh, Kenneth Branagh. It's about a group, a trio of uh, native young Native girls who are sold into servitude and they escape. And the movie is about their, their escaping. Okay. I'm guessing over the rabbit proof fence. Gotcha. Yep. I would like to think that after they shot this scene, someone went and found that rabbit and took care of it. Just do their civic duty. Yes. Killing the rabbits. Yeah. Pulling an Elmer Fudd. Kill the rabbits. Kill the rabbits. <laughs> um, I joke, but it's it's like it's a serious, it's a serious matter. <laughs> and I'm I'm curious if it's still like it has the problem been solved? I would say no. Is it on its way to being solved? Like, is it better than it used to be, or is it just as bad as ever? That's actually a really good question, listeners. Yeah, I'm if curious you, about the current state. Yeah, if you know how the rabbit war is going in Australia, please let us know. Jump on the listeners page, write us a post, let us know how things are going because we're very interested so getting back on the road with max and the gyro captain and dog we get another white transition to max the captain and the dog walking to the edge of a ridge that is overlooking the compound this is our first introduction to the area known as the pinnacles and this is one of the spots they were scouting out <laughs> they were scouting out several different areas to try and place this compound, and they wanted to try salt flats, and Byron Kennedy was really concerned that if it ever rained, the whole thing could be washed away on the salt flats. And I think the Pinnacles was probably the second or third place that they looked at. And when they saw the the peaks and the ridges and the open area, they said, ah, oh, this is perfect. And so this is where they filmed a lot of the movie because this is where they placed the compound. And so as we're kind of walking up over this ridge, we get a good shot of the gyro captain and he's shackled around his ankles. Yep. And I think he's also got chains on his wrists probably, as well. Yeah, yeah the, the shackles around his ankles are nice and long so he can walk pretty well, which is good because they're like climbing up this very rocky ledge. Yeah, a lot of uneven footing. Yeah. And the thing that stood out most to me as they're walking along this ridge, getting to the edge, overlooking this scene, there is a chunk of the score that plays. And I'm not going to throw the music into this episode specifically. I'll probably make a video down the road and post it on the Mad Max Minute YouTube page so you can kind of get a comparison of the two. But I swear, up and down, that this little chunk of the score, as they're walking on the ridge, sounds so very close to the music that you hear in the opening of A New Hope when the Tantivive is being overtaken by Vader's Star Destroyer. It's kind of hard to hear the music in that scene because of all the laser blasts and explosions, but I don't know if it's the percussion, I don't know if it's the horns, but I swear they sound so similar. So keep an eye on that popping up at some point because I just can't watch Mad Max Road Warrior without thinking of Star Wars. I can't do most <laughs> things without thinking about Star Wars, but that's beside the point entirely. But anyway, they get to the top of the ridge and we see Max and the captain peeking over some rocks and Max pulls out the binoculars that he's had hanging off of his outfoot. Gyro Captain says, well, there it is. 
and through Max's binoculars, we get to see a couple of close-up details as the gyro captain continues talking. The the thing that struck me, that as soon as we see the refinery, it's immediately like engulfed in, in dust clouds because it's under attack. Mm-hmm. That is not like made a big deal of. Nobody seems concerned that this place is under attack. I will give you that even if they were genuinely concerned about there's a battle taking place down below them, what can they do about it? Yeah. Absolutely nothing. They are in a safe place, out of view, having nothing to do with it. The gyro captain just starts talking about himself and how he was scouting out the place for four days without ever, like, saying, oh, look at that, they're under attack. It just seems weird. He will mention when the horde showed up tomorrow. Yes. In the dialogue there. But he's got to give Max a little bit of introductory context of how he came to learn of this place. Yes. You know, the idea that he just spent a couple of days up on the ridge keeping an eye on things, trying to find some sort of weakness so that he could get the gasoline that was in there. He says, four days I was up here, me and the snakes, playing mahjong, taking tea, watching, thinking, how was I gonna? And the minute cuts off right as he says, how I was gonna, and we're gonna find out tomorrow that he says, get in there and get the gasoline, but that's for tomorrow. One of the details that really stands out to me as Max is looking through his binoculars of how we get, rewind, is how we get to see the variety of vehicles in the horde. We've got a couple of motorcycles at the beginning. We've got kind of a, like a converted Ford F-100 truck and a couple of repurposed police cars and another buggy. Like these are the different factions that we mentioned a while back when we were talking about bad cops and mohawks and, yep. you know, all of those different factions within the Horde. And I like that we get to see him on display here. And it kind of seems to me that we're purposely being called back to the pursuer's from that opening chase. And we're going to have a more concrete connection to that opening chase in what we see tomorrow. Yes. But this is kind of our first indication that the trio that was chasing down Max the other day, like they're not unique. Yes, part of a larger group. Exactly. Another thing that stood out to me, it's one of the first things that we see when Max is looking through his binoculars, is that they have a couple of camels in a pen. And if I asked you where you think the largest herd of wild camels is located, where do you think you would find that? Oh, uh, probably in the Middle East somewhere, maybe Egypt. Like Northern Africa, Northern Africa. Iraq or anything, Afghanistan type of thing. Yeah, like the desert countries. Well, I set you up. Yeah, Because the largest herd of wild camels in the world is in Australia. Are camels native to Australia? No. The British brought them. Yep. With the rabbits. Camels were imported to Australia in the 19th century. Ah. So later than rabbits. Okay, okay. Now I know camels are not rabbits, but they had such a disastrous experience with rabbits They didn't learn their lesson. And they had the nerve to introduce another species to the continent? Yeah, that's... That's Britain for you. Yeah. Yeah. The English can do no wrong in their eyes. Okay. Yeah. Well, this one seems to have gone better. (laughs) Well, like I said, camels were imported to Australia in the 19th century from Arabia, India, Afghanistan, and their main purpose was transport and heavy work in the outback because they can, they drink the water, they store it, they can survive in those conditions. Then the internal combustion engine came along and... Yeah, not that long after. The camels were just released. 
several thousand were released into the wild at once. And they have no natural predators. There's vast, sparsely populated areas in which they can just roam around. And they've flourished. They have a, I think, 750,000 camels that are just wild. they don't eat rabbits. Yeah. If you could breed the hunger for rabbit into the camel. It would be a little bit like the old lady who swallowed a fly. Right. <laughs> you know, the rabbits are out of control, and so you train the camels to eat rabbits. Well, the How ra- long until the camels are out of control? The camels are already out of control, so now you've got to train another animal to eat the camel. <laughs> Yeah. You know, thank you, Mother Britain, for going hog wild with invasive species. But yeah, the, the camels, they're, they're a big issue because they drink a lot of water and they come through and they eat all your vegetation, just like rabbits do. It's not great. Not a great situation. Yeah. Another thing that stood out to me, and this is going back to the gyro captain's dialogue, is that he was saying, four days I was up here, me and the snakes playing Mahjong. And I heard that and I was like, I don't know how to play Mahjong. Now, I think you said earlier that... Yeah, I've played it. Yeah. On the computer. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, it's... Um, is it a, is it a game you can play just by yourself? Oh yeah, it's yeah. I mean, it's a game you can. I suppose you can play it with people, but um, you know, taking turns. Mm-hmm. But you've got you know you've got all your different tiles face up, and they're arranged and stacked on top of each other. I think there are like set patterns that you put the tiles out in, mm-hmm. and there are rules on which ones are available to pluck, to take at any given time about you know their availability. I think they have to be. I don't. I really don't know. Um, but then you just match pairs that are available to take. And that frees up other ones, and you do that. So you can easily, like, take turns going back and forth or just do it all yourself. Yeah. Yeah. According to the Wikipedia entry on Mahjong, it's a tile-based game that originated in China during the Qing Dynasty. It is commonly played by four players with some three-player variations found in South Korea and Japan. The game and its regional variants are widely played throughout Eastern and Southeastern Asia and have a small following in Western countries. Similar to the Western card game Rummy, Mahjong is a game of skill, strategy, and calculation and involves a degree of chance. Does not sound like something that you can necessarily play with snakes. So I imagine that the term playing Mahjong with snakes was not meant to be literal. Right. But it does kind of paint a funny picture of the gyro captain sitting up there and he's got his little pile of tiles and he's got three other little piles of tiles with snakes sitting next to him. And he's sitting there and he's like, come on, Bruce. It's your turn. Play your tiles. Pick them up. Put them down. Just sitting there. And he looks over at another snake and he's like, can you believe this guy? Terrible. I can totally see the captain sharing his tea with the snakes. <laughs> I say, like, snakes also don't strike me as the kind of animals that would drink tea. Drink tea. Well, uh, water is water. It's there. It's the wasteland. Even when it's been, when it's had a bunch of weeds dunked in it. Yes. I'm not a tea drinker, so. Um, Fred, what was I going to say? Oh, I love his phrasing that he was taking tea. Very British. Like, we don't take tea in America. We drink it. We have it. Um, but we don't take it. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing, the only instance in which we take tea is when we're getting tea as, you know, in a drive through <laughs> Right. You take your tea. <laughs> you're you're taking, you're taking it because you're taking it from someone else and then you're leaving. <laughs> yes. You're not sitting down and making it an event. Uh, so it's it's um it's very proper sounding. Mm, yeah, I have a I I have a tenuous relationship with tea. My family dates back to like revolutionary times, and so we're the kind of people that throw it in harbors. Wow. <laughs> 
Wow. I'm pretty sure we are too, but I like to drink my tea. Not in Boston Harbor water. Nope. No, no. Tea is best enjoying when you're when you're a cranky white guy upset about taxes, dressing up like a Native American and going down to the docks at night, breaking open a bunch of crates and throwing other people's property into the into the harbor. <laughs> It's like number one best way to enjoy tea. Oh, that is so New England. (laughs) We are so cranky in New England. Yep. Well, we are what we are. Yeah. I think that pretty much brings us to the end of the minute. Was there anything else that you had in your notes you wanted to bring up? I've got nothing else for today. So we are going to wrap for now. Tomorrow's episode is going to be a Fresh Eyes Friday, so that'll be fun. You'll get to find out who we have on then. Looking forward to it. Yeah. I, I I don't want to get my hopes up because when you have low expectations, there's no chance for disappointment. <laughs> but I am I am looking forward to tomorrow. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. The Mad Max franchise was created by George Miller and Byron Kennedy and presented by Warner Brothers Pictures in association with Village Roadshow Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. You can follow Mad Max Minute on Twitter at Mad Max Minute, on Facebook at Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone, and at MadMaxMinute.com. And finally, if you would like to contribute to the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com, click on the support link at the top of the page, and check out our Patreon to help us keep the tanks full. Thank you for joining us for Minute 14 of the Road Warrior. We'll see you tomorrow.